Elie Wiesel once said, without memory, there is no culture. Without memory, there would be no civilization, no society, no future. Well, as a nation, this upcoming Monday, we will be remembering those who gave their lives away in their pursuit of peace as they served in the military. Let us not forget that it, let us not forget that they fought hard to pass on to us the freedoms that we regard so carelessly sometimes as a nation. It's Saturday, May 29th, 2021, and today we are taking a look at the following top stories. The restoration of lab leak theory as a theory rather than a fringe conspiracy. The tragic shooting that occurred in San Jose, California, taking the lives of 10 people. The Republican pushback on critical race theory and why it matters. We also take a look at what happened in the skies above Belarus and the growing movement of QAnon beliefs in America. Welcome to LifeRing, a podcast where we strive to provide you with a well-rounded review of what is going on in the world between Monday and Friday of this past week. My name is Alex, and I'm joined by my co-navigator, Vadim. Hello. What's up, Vadim? How are you doing? Doing pretty good, but I was thinking about a close personal friend of mine that passed away on this day five years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, he was, he was a good gorilla. A young guy? Yeah, pretty young. Pretty young, yeah. It's Harambe. <laughs> Come on. Did he pass away around this time? Yeah, it was May May twenty eighth. Hmm. So okay. we're still Yeah. Well on on this day in history. Are you and gonna be doing anything fun this memorial weekend? That remains to be seen. I have plans, but who knows how they're gonna turn out. What yeah. about you? Yeah, well we're we're probably gonna go Winthrop. Oh nice. Winthrop, Washington. Really nice place. Um maybe get to spend a few days out there in eastern Washington. It's much warmer. All right, let's jump into our usual COVID briefing before we get to the top stories that you should know about this week. Well, Memorial Weekend is here, and it's uh, that time when United States remembers those who gave their lives away in the pursuit of peace as they served in the military. I don't think that, you know, soldiers who join the military, you know, is looking forward to becoming a sacrifice. And yet for so many of them, death came without invitation. And so we have a Memorial Day, which is most likely going to be spent enjoying the freedom of celebrating uh, the opening of summer with more optimism than last year. Now, here are the major highlights uh, from the previous week in relation to COVID. As of today, CDC says 40% of population is fully vaccinated. Uh, Cases have been going down for the past few weeks now. And in general, it seems like reopening is happening. Uh, some new developments that were announcements that were made by CDC um, when they were bleh. some new developments were an announcement made by CDC when they said that children at U.S. camps this summer can go without masks most of the time when they are outside. So before a few months, I think ago, they were saying that all camps will have to wear masks inside and outside. Now they've changed that, plus the vaccinated people, you could pretty much have the whole camp being unmasked. Now, in the world, outside of this country, Japan extended a state of emergency until one month before the Olympics. In fact, right now, there's a lot of talk going on whether the Olympics will even happen. By the way, India's cases, uh, after reaching its peak on May 8th, have dropped to half of that number to this point. So before it was like 400 per day, now it's to 200 or somewhere there. They've been going down. Then there's Michigan, the state where, you know, this had skyrocketing cases uh, a week, a month ago. Well, the Democrat governor, 
Gretchen Whitmer, recently came under fire, and rightfully so. So she met with a group of like 13 people in restaurant. Now, she met with a few people, but then a lot more people showed up. And so they put the tables together. Somebody posted a picture and the question came up. Hold on. So everybody in the state, you know, the, the rules are that six people no more. And here they are, you know. And so she had to publicly apologize. And she said, quote, because we were all vaccinated, we didn't stop to think about it. And then she went on to say, in retrospect, I should have thought about it. I am human. I made a mistake and I apologize. So she is added to the gallery of all the officials who have been breaking their own rules. Somebody said, uh, maybe we should make a, uh, what's it called? Like take all, take all the politicians who broke their own rules during the pandemic mm. and make a nice coffee table book. Oh, yeah. That'd, That'd be would, fun to flip through. Yeah. See maybe. some familiar faces. <laughs> right. Uh, she's also um, came under fire because of the trip that she made. Again, when she asked her, what do you call them, constituents of the state not to travel, she traveled to see her father in a Florida, I believe. And uh, and so she went on this private jet, if I'm not mistaken, which the trip cost 27000 total, 27500 So she paid $855 for it. And the remaining bill was footed by the Michigan Transition 2019, a nonprofit organization established to pay for inauguration-related events. And so right now they're actually looking to charge her criminally for this thing. At least the Republicans are looking into it. Well, because she used money that was out of this fund, right, for her own personal. Also two other staffers, I think, uh, on her team traveled during the time when she told nobody can travel. So so much for um, showing an example as a leader. Leader. Abigail Buginski has won the highest first $1 million jackpot in the state's uh, Vaximilian lottery. She's 22 years old, works at GE Aviation. She just recently actually moved into the area for the new job and went and got vaccinated. And what do you know? She's the winner of the Ohio's $1 million lottery. A bunch of states now have come up with all sorts of uh, vaccine incentives. And the government has been actually encouraging even businesses to, you know, not too much, but come up with some incentives within reasonable, I guess, limits. Oh, yeah. So. There was that. Who was that that was eating the cheeseburger on TV? <laughs> was like that an, an, the mayor of New York? Maybe. Or oh, yes, yes, yes. Was that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember that one. You're right. Well, and that's about all that matters this week in relation to COVID, except for one thing, which will be the first of the usual five segments. Well, according to New York Times, the administration takes seriously the possibility that the virus was accidentally leaked from a lab. Now, this is in reference to the COVID-19 virus. So for the past year, media and Democrats in general looked at this, quote, lab leak theory, which outlets, including the Times, uh, dismissed as a fringe or a conspiracy theory uh, last year when promoted when it was promoted by Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas. And of course, Trump also spoke of it, calling it the China virus and so on. So according to Fox News, some reporters have suggested that the fact that the Trump administration pushed the theory last year was part of why it was initially rejected. They went on to say the Wall Street Journal reported Sunday on three researchers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology who grew sick enough in November 2019 that they sought hospital care, according to a previously undisclosed U.S. intelligence report. 
U.S. officials are increasingly calling for a closer investigation of the virus origins. Now, here I have a clip uh, from Fox News uh, reporter. Take a listen. The president believes there needs to be an independent investigation, one that's run by the international community. Even as the Biden administration continues its call for a fuller WHO-led investigation into the origins of COVID-19, new reports have surfaced that Biden's team shut down a closely held State Department effort launched late in the Trump administration to prove the virus originated in a Chinese lab. The existence of the State Department inquiry and its termination this spring by the Biden administration comes to light amid growing questions about whether the virus leaked out of a Wuhan lab with links to the Chinese military. A State Department spokesperson tells CNN tonight, even though this discrete project has concluded, the State Department continues to work with the interagency to look into the COVID origins issue. Because we don't know 100% what the origin is, it's imperative that we look and we do an investigation. And that's how we feel right now. Fauci's testimony comes after a report in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that bolstered the theory that the virus was lab created and didn't occur, as Fauci has repeatedly suggested, in nature. Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn is calling on the White House to ensure a thorough and unbiased investigation into the origin of COVID-19. The American people deserve to know how President Biden is working to keep communist China's influence out of the World Health Organization investigation into the origin of COVID-19, she wrote, adding, President Biden's fear of a confrontation with Xi Jinping is cause for concern. The families of nearly 600,000 Americans killed by this virus deserve answers. That comment at the end really stood out to me where he is talking about uh, basically like Joe Biden was involved in whoever shut down that investigation because, uh, well, I mean, now that he's president, he's still afraid to have a confrontation with Xi Jinping, which, um, you know, if we... Harken back to that Alaska summit um, where, you know, the Chinese representative called the whole country of the United States racist. You know, I would say that's that's confrontational enough. And the fact that we're not allowed to say anything back or even accuse them of something that's really very probable, like that Wuhan lab was really close to the to the marketplace where they originally said that COVID-19 started. Right. So, you know, it's it's totally in the realm of possibility even looking back on it in hindsight and by what we know today. Yeah, so a bunch of people have been called conspiracy theorists for something that is very likely. Yeah. Like, not, it shouldn't have even been, you know, outside of questioning, I guess. Not only that, but like, racist, xenophobes, like, any name under the sun. Yep, and so that this whole ridiculing went on for, you know, months and months by the left and, and the mainstream media. And, you know, the posts of the people who would post this or tweets were censored and removed. And now as the post-election censorship is quieting down, we hear that, oh, maybe it is or maybe it's not. But, you know, now it's a maybe. Now it's there's no, you know, definite uh, answer to it like there wasn't before. This this just makes me think, what else could be wrong? What, what else could they be wrong about? And by they, I mean the mainstream media or the social platforms that ban something today that in a few months or when the political situation changes, all of a sudden it's going to be a maybe. This is the nature of the whole subjectivism, the idea that we can keep rewriting truth as it seems, you know, better to us today. And then, you know, when, when times change, well, we just kind of change it and move on. We call them mainstream narratives, right? Which is what they are. They're, they're sharing stories that carry out what is in line with the current political climate. So 
it was a conspiracy theory in part because of Trump, because Trump called it openly China virus. And I don't think he meant anything derogatory or even racial here. This was sort of speaking to the country of origin of the virus. Yeah, this is China, not to say that the virus itself is Chinese. or. Yeah, or, I don't know who needs to hear this, but China is the geographic location. Like, <laughs> it's, it's a real country on the map. It's a communist country on the map. Here's an interesting quote that I found by journalist Glenn Greenwald. He went on to say, Can someone explain to me why it's racist to wonder if a virus escaped from a Chinese lab, but it's not racist to insist that it infected humans because of Chinese wet markets? If anything is, isn't the latter more racist? Yeah, I guess like the only way you would be able to not implicate a certain group of people is if it came from a place where nobody lives. You'd still have to refer yeah. to a geographical location of where it came from. <laughs> Either way. Fair, so. fair. Yeah. Plus, wouldn't, wouldn't you think that China by now would have some straight answers for us? So here's Senator Rubio uh, asking Fauci why he dismissed the lab leak theory as unlikely. What is the basis for this li high likely? What is the basis for the conclusion that it is likelier to have been naturally occurring than a lab accident? I asked a specific question to the director of national intelligence, and how I posed it is: Is it not true that it is the assessment that they are equally likely based on our information that we have? So, as I outline all of these things here, is she wrong when she answered me yes? And based on everything I've just cited, why the? What is it that we're basing the higher likelihood of naturally occurring? Is it simply because that's all we've ever seen in the past? Well, we have historical experience that happened with SARS-CoV-1. It happened with MERS. It happened with HIV. It happened with virtually all the influenza pandemics. So the historical basis for pandemics evolving naturally from an animal reservoir is extremely strong. And it's for that reason that we felt that something similar like this has a much higher likelihood. But again, getting back to what I said, and let me repeat so there's no lack of clarity in that, no one knows, not even I, 100% at this point, which is the reason why we are in favor of further investigation. But going back to precedent, the, the precedents require them to be similar. The difference between this one and that one is, in, as I said, four months we knew the host for SARS, and nine months we knew the host for MERS. China has all the incentive in the world to produce this host and hasn't done so. And then you add up all these other things. I mean, is it just a coincidence that happened in the city that's doing this kind of research, which, by the way, is controversial? I know you and others have been supportive of it, but, but it's controversial. It's not widely accepted as, as, as good. My whole point is there are people out there who had Facebook posts taken down, they're called kooks, conspiracy theorists, for saying publicly a year ago what we now say may be possible. And I think those people deserve an apology at a minimum. Yeah, I think that sums it up really well. I mean, if you if you've ever played that game Plague on your phone, the mobile game where you like go into the symptoms tab and you just start randomly evolving symptoms to make it more potent, I guess. Uh, that's I mean, that's exactly what gain of function research is. I don't know if I was if I was China, I would definitely be trying to at least like get a scapegoat out there so people's curiosity can be satisfied at least. Yeah, like you're saying, to that point, Swiss uh, scientists actually have recreated the coronavirus in the lab environment, so they were able to recreate it completely, which gives even more credence to the whole idea that it's likely that it has been created by them playing around with it. And now Fauci, Fauci also has a special interest in it because he has been, you know, supporting the the research. It was a how did they call it? They call it a 
moderate or modest amount of I think ninety thousand nine hundred thousand dollars over the course of how many years five years I think or something like that. Again, not a ton in comparison to probably what what they received in overall, but he does have special interest in it. That's why he can't be part of the investigation, you know, in the first place. Now, yes, some people do deserve an apology and they're not going to get it. And that's now becoming, I guess, common in this day and age. Facebook released this statement uh, this week. In light of ongoing investigation into the origin of COVID-19 and in consultation with public health experts, we will no longer remove the claim that COVID-19 is a man-made uh, that COVID-19 is man-made from our apps. We're continuing to work with health experts to keep pace with the evolving nature of the pandemic and regularly update our policies as new facts and trends emerge. New facts and new trends. So that's why the whole censorship is a dangerous game. You know, the tables flip the moment new facts, as they say, new trends arrive. And they do arrive. And oftentimes, they're not so much facts as just trends. Trends of a society breaking away from solid ground of logical and reasonable thinking. GVA stands for Gun Violence Archive. It's a website and organization that keeps track of mass shootings in the United States. Now, according to them, a mass shooting, for the most part, an American phenomenon. Well, they define it as a type of an incident when, quote, a minimum of four victims shot either injured or killed, not including any shooter who may also have been killed or injured in the incident. Now, I'm bringing them up because part of this, I'm bringing this up uh, because as of this past week, since Saturday, for example, Saturday of last week, there have been 15 such mass shootings across the United States. Sadly, there have been already 255 this year so far. And if you compare it to the previous year, we had 610. So on average, you get like, we, we would usually have, I guess, from 10 to 13, 14 mass shootings. So 15, you know, unfortunately is not that far away from what we would expect it to be. And yes, it, it became a sad reality of our lives. Adults dealing with life in the worst way possible by taking lives of other people, oftentimes without any discrimination for age or gender or family status. This week, though, another unusual shooting rocked the nation. So according to Axios, uh, this guy, the shooter, the suspect, 57-year-old Sam Cassidy, he has worked for Valley Transportation Authority in San Jose, California, since at least 2012, uh, according to Public Payroll and Pension Database. Uh, first, he worked as a mechanic from 2012 to 2014, and then as someone who maintained substations. So this is a... Yeah, I think, I think it's like a light rail light rail yeah so the shooting took place about 6 30 a.m very early in the morning local time in two buildings at the vta a transit control center that stores trains and has a maintenance yard according to associated press santa clara county sheriff Lori smith told nbc's uh today show that the gunman had two semi-automatic handguns and 11 11 loaded magazines a locker suspected to have belonged to him contained, quote, materials for bombs, detonator cords, the precursors to an explosive. So this guy didn't just come, you know, ready to, to do what he was about to do. 11 loaded magazines, right? Two handguns. He also was planning to do some kind of a, you know, uh, a bomb, I guess, a makeshift bomb. 
Now, Smith added that the officials are also investigating a fire that started before the shooting in a house that records say belonged to Cassidy and suggests that he probably set some kind of device to go off at a certain time, probably to coincide with the shooting. Now, Smith told reporters uh, on Wednesday afternoon this week that, quote, when our deputies went through the door, initially he was still firing rounds. And when our deputy saw him, he took his life. So as of now, the report is that 10 people have died. Now, I also read uh, in another article that the gunman targeted certain people and let others go. So he really wasn't... Uh, it was it, it was a really odd shooting. Yeah, and you mentioned before that, that like this seems to be like a premeditated, coordinated, uh, almost like an execution. Like I was reading a little bit about his... Uh, well, I guess I watched a video about a news report where... Uh, they talked about him being like a disgruntled worker at that place, and he just always talked about how much he hated it there. He had some disciplinary issues there as well, but uh, this was very much premeditated. Like it's, it reminds me of like maybe Columbine High School shooting, mm-hmm. um, you know, something like that. Except this wasn't, you know, edgy teenager kids. This was uh, like this is a fifty-seven-year-old guy. Yeah, like this is a guy that lived life, you know, and you would you would expect, yeah, terrible. It, you know, this is, it's a mental problem. It's a reflection of American struggle with the fruits of its culture. I mean, these are the people who are, you know, seen the cultural revolution, you know, unfold. And, uh, and so the amount of violence that has been promoted in songs, movies, games, it, it's all having effect, you know, on those who never got a grasp on what it means to have self-control. And this is just one of those examples. They allowed the image of violence to take over their thinking. They see it as the only way to deal with the impending, looming, evil cloud of sin weighing on them. I'm just wondering, when will we finally begin to see the correlation between the ugly cultural heritage that we produce and the outburst of evil that we see almost daily in this country, right? You've got, like, like I mentioned before, like all these songs filled with violence, right? All these movies that are essentially are uncensored in terms of the kind of violence they portray. And then we wonder, you know, Oh, it's the problem with guns. Oh, it's the problem with something else, right? Biden said in a statement, um, in fact, in response to this, he says, every life that is taken by a bullet pierces the soul of our nation. We can and we must do more. And of course, he's talking about doing something more about the guns, right? Taking away some privileges, taking away some rights, you know, limiting ways of how people can get their hands of guns. But really this whole do more, do more of what? You know, you don't take guns away uh, from from adults. That's what maybe maybe that would work for children, but not to adults. Adults should be responsible for their actions. Gun is a tool, uh, you know, a weapon, but but a tool that could be used for good or you know for defense or or for hunting, if you will. But it also could be used like any other tool that you use. You know, it could be used to to take away a life. And so th- that's just not a solution to you know. That's something that you would expect to be done to kids. And so when we talk about limiting somebody's rights, you know, in a way, for, for example, how they could get a weapon, we're really talking about a, a childlike behavior. We're basically saying we can't really trust this nation anymore to have their own guns. And, and Biden especially, whose disregard for the most precious lives of the unborn children is boldening every month. You know, he put the public funding abortion into his $6 trillion budget plan for the upcoming year. Um, you know, he's becoming the most pro-abortion president of all of them. That's at the same time while being Catholic. He is now speaking of lives that are taken away. 
if he truly cared, he would be looking not just at those who are lost, you know, uh, through these mass shootings, but also at the millions that are lost. The precious lives, truly precious lives, uh, that are lost at the hands of abortion doctors. Meanwhile, we continue to pray that God has mercy on this country and that people can bring their messed up lives to Jesus who can begin to unravel the mess we sometimes get into. And I truly believe that the nation's only hope is to at least reduce the turning away. Maybe stop it for a moment, you know, this turning away from God, even if by a bit. And of course, I pray that all the affected families find peace and hope in Him as they live through the most horrible times of their life. So one may argue that America has become more woke than ever. And yet, as we saw in the previous segment, the effect on the society is not decreasing violence. In fact, it grew to its highest levels. And, you know, it's not even racially based, at least not in most cases. So civil rights advocates and some educators have been pushing for a variant of critical theory, specifically the critical race theory which has this core idea that racism is not an issue of individual racism, but that racism is woven into the public policies and laws. It's the assertion that the system is steeped, if you will, with racially motivated decisions that piled up, and the only way to undo it is to undo the whole system. Now, the critical race theory is something like four decades old. Uh, However, the critical theory is originally a Marxist approach to social philosophy, which stemmed from you know 18 late 1800s and its main goal was to critique every aspect of society and culture in order to reveal and challenge the power structures so he was concerned with you know the current power structures that were during his time which were mainly kings and queens and whatnot monarchies so it's kind of interesting because i think it goes even before that like even before marx marx was a byproduct already of a postmodern you know, well, the age of enlightenment, I guess, that brought about challenges to a lot of the previous uh, beliefs, foundations, everything that was before. So in this new, you know, in the beginning of 1800s and going forward, there was this rethinking of everything, right? Because we're now seeing a bit more inventions coming up. This was heading into the technological progress age. For the past, uh, you know, couple hundred years, there was this interest in science and rethinking the world as we know it. And so it's all, you know, leading from that time. And then it's built into, you know, Karl Marx coming up. Let's rethink everything. You know, let's rethink the world as we know it. And of course, a lot of his ideas were uh, out there. They were like utopian, meaning there was no uh, basis for it. Like he never seen any of these ideas play out anywhere. Like this wasn't a practical thing that he observed from the ages of old or, you know, like have seen in some sort of civilization. This was a completely new idea that, hey, why don't everybody be equal, right? Why don't, uh, you know, we overthrow the oppressors and then work in, you know, in such a way the society that they would just uphold one another. Like this was not an idea that was possible before. In fact, it's still not possible till this day. And yeah. I don't think it ever will, will be. I don't, I don't know... I haven't really studied the Communist Manifesto really in depth, but it seems like from kind of what I hear people constantly referring to it, it really just does seem like a big wish list of like, okay, ideal society, here's what it looks like. And so I think that, you know, kind of like with a lot of progressive stuff we see in our time, that just the novelty of it drew so much people in thinking like, oh, okay, like this is new, that means it's progress. And, and, and you know, it's in, I, I get it. People were probably fed up with the kings and, you know, 
at that time and with this whole system and they thought, man, we've been having this thing for so long. It's about time to shake it up. But because just because it's novel and new and, and interesting doesn't mean that it holds water. And so if we look at it, you know, the, the whole development, I guess, over the past, let's say, 100 years, we've seen a rise of postmodern philosophy. And one of the tenets of postmodernism is deconstruction, where you tear down what, you know, previously has been established. It'd be institutions, ideas, beliefs, and all of it under the guise that there is no historical objectivity. And since history itself is subjective, inherently then so are the values and ideas that so-called progressives brought. And so critical race theory uh, aims at separating everything, I guess, in social classes and, and showing the tension and conflict between those social classes. It's the words that you've probably heard, such as intersectionality, where some have moral authority to speak the truth since they are oppressed. It's the excuse moral accountability of the oppressed people since they are oppressed, thus they, you know, can morally now be on a higher ground than you. It's when speaking against the oppressed people would be, you know, called racism or, you know, you're oppressing them or you're oppressing their ideas. And also just being a part of the traditional hegemony, you are inherently racist. Or it's the whole idea of, you know, offering equal opportunity to everyone, which doesn't always, you know, equal an equal outcome or means an equal outcome. And so all of this stems from the critical race theory. Their main goal is overthrowing the hegemony, which the, the way Marx used it was meant to be a lordship. It's overthrowing those who are in power. And so... This ideology has been developing, especially over the past, you know, like I said, 40 decades. Now, those who laid the groundwork for the critical race theory, uh, from the beginning, they understood that in order to change the society, like completely change it, like rewrite history, if you will, you would need to control the robes of society. And that is education, pastoral, judicial, and government systems. And their goal was to, you know, I guess, p penetrate and... and come into one each each of these areas and, and and affect them from the inside out which is what have been seen you know in our education system and in the religion you know in the sphere of religion and also in our courts and government we've been seeing the seeping in of liberalism and this critical race theory and critical theory in general through all of the branches of our society over the robes of the society well anyways Tennessee governor Bill Lee this week signed a bill uh, banning the teaching of critical race theory in public schools. Now, in addition to him, there are nine other governors. For example, Idaho Governor Brad Little and Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt recently signed similar bans, and lawmakers in Oregon, Arkansas, Utah, Missouri, and Arizona are crafting their own versions. Stitt was kicked off the commission, marking the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre after he signed the bill banning critical race theory from schools. In Texas last week, the state Senate approved a bill to ban critical race theory in public and open enrollment charter schools and eliminate requirements to study writings by women and people of color, according to Axios. A forum at Missouri school district turned heated last month after white parents booed speakers talking about racial discrimination and others denounced critical race theory as propaganda. School administrators reported receiving death threats. So, now here's, you know, an African-American, Burgess Owens, who is a former University of Miami and NFL star who travels the country delivering message of optimism, hope, and unity. 
Uh, he spent his childhood growing up in Deep South during the time when the barriers of segregation were being torn down. So he knows what he's speaking when he says, fire them, get rid of them, Owen said during a Saturday appearance on Newsmax. That ideology is against everything we believe in. We need to fire everyone we can find. And those we will find later on, we'll figure out a way to get rid of them too. So do you think uh, critical race theory should be banned, Vadim? You think about the implications of it, right? So if we can tie it back to the previous story we covered where you talk about, uh, you know, at what point are we going to make the connection between, you know, a perverse co- cultural heritage and then explosions of evil and just these these great manifestations of evil, you could say, well, how are we supposed to make that correlation if we can't agree what evil is? And so I think that we need to have a solid foundation of uh, that has moral objective truth where we can at least agree on these really elementary things. That being said, there's also the question of the actual content of this critical race theory. There's a question of, uh, you know, difference between depiction and difference between exploitation. So you can have depictions of, uh, you know, historical racial oppression, and then you could have exploitation. So you can have, uh, you know, we study slavery, so we make sure it never happens again. But we also, uh, you know, show graphic images of slavery and hold it over people's heads whether or not we could say for sure if they have a heritage in that and you know you're judging essentially by the color of the white person's skin um and so i think that's an important contention to make um but should it be banned well you know should we ban people from majoring in klingon should we ban people from majoring in underwater basket weaving i think people just need to understand that it's silly um and then it'll it'll disappear yeah, I think I agree with that because I think if we start banning things, uh, well, it could go both ways. And, you know, I guess... Yeah, the there, same- there could be such a big emotional reaction that it actually propagates the theory even more. Yeah, and, and it reminds me, I guess, of uh, the theory of uh, evolution, right? At some point, this was a question of like, oh, no, they're bringing, you know, um, evolution theory into schools, Right. Well, at first it was brought on as a theory and now it became, you know, mainstream. And so like, I guess you could, you could compare it to that and be like, well, it shouldn't be banned, but it should be taught as a theory because that's what it is. It's a, it's a theory. Now, I also don't think it should be taught as, as the, the truth or the way to look at the world, especially to the youngest children, right? We should definitely talk about racism, but not from a critical race theory perspective where Everything is seeped with racism, you know, institutional racism and so on. That's different than teaching little children to understand individual racism, which is, I think, because children are not going to be affecting the system, not until they're out of high school, college. So, yeah, maybe later on, it would make sense to uh, introduce them to the theory if they want to. You can take a class in critical race theory if you're so inclined, but shouldn't be part of a fundament, you know, like your basics, I guess. And this whole, uh, you know, ideology is divisive. It's it's reverse segregation, if you will, especially the further it develops. It's white shaming, it's reparations, white privilege, you know. And then we talk about blacks who are oppressed or are failing because of white people rather than looking at the real issues of family statistics for black families and how they've changed in the past 40 years or evaluating the effects of racial selection for education placement rather than merit or, you know, academic achievement, or the democratic laws that on the surface seem to offer 
help to black communities while in reality keeps them locked into poverty and, and holding on to the government's checks. Or the effect, for example, of the culture. Just listen to the most popular rap songs filled with violence, hate, sex, infidelity, and all sorts of filth. Those are the areas we probably should focus and study and if we truly want to help, you know, let's say black community, for example, or for that matter, any minority, you know, community that is struggling in the United States, you know, with crime or, or poverty for that matter. So as a result, humanity, you know, comes up with any excuses to shift the blame elsewhere rather than to admit the sinfulness of human nature. And because to admit is to admit that we need a solution beyond ourselves. And that in turn means inviting Jesus to be the Lord of our lives. And so they keep going on in hopes of building up the utopia that lives on only in their minds of these theorists, trying to find the excuse in something else. Meanwhile, at least in these nine states led by Republican governors, they are taking a stand to not allow this ideology to become the only way to think. Welcome to the lightning round, where we go through some of the main headlines on our cutting room floor and cover them briefly. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has shown up in Egypt to uh, claim some credit for making progress in boosting the Gaza truce. Good for him. I, I, was, I was wondering if, you know, it was just a symbolical, I guess, arrival of U.S. after the bullies already kind of, not bullies, after, after the fight broke. After, after, like, the fighting quieted down. That's what it's called. In the world of political news, President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin will meet in Geneva, Switzerland, on June 16th for their first in-person summit. The White House announced on Tuesday, according to Axios, they say the highly anticipated summit offers an early test of Biden's administration goal of holding Russia accountable for its abuses while seeking a more, quote, stable and, quote, predictable relationship. Obviously, there's tensions between U.S. and Russia. Biden not too long ago, said in an interview that he believes that Putin is a killer. Uh, well, he was kind of, he was kind of coerced into saying that by the interviewer. I think, well, like he didn't say that of his own accord. So, so he was. Well, he said it nevertheless, and it prompted Mos- Moscow to recall its ambassadors to the U.S. And then, uh, of course, the Biden administration has imposed sanctions on Russia for election interference uh, in the attempted poisoning of uh, Alexei Navalny and the solar winds hack of federal agencies and the occupation of Crimea to add to the list. So they still have those sanctions. Now, despite the tensions, this article goes on to say, both governments have expressed interest in cooperating on areas of mutual interest like climate change and arms control. Now, it's interesting at the bottom here, they mention also a flashback at a now infamous summit in Helsinki in July 2018. Oh, and here on our own soil here, The Senate failed to reach the 60 votes necessary to advance bill creating a bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th Capitol riots, voting 54 to 35 as Republicans invoke the first legislative filibuster of the Biden presidency. So this is the 9-11 style commission to investigate the Capitol riots. And um, the Republicans said, we mentioned this last week, but the Republicans said that they would support it only if all the other protesters would be included in this investigation. Otherwise, it's just one-sided partisan investigation. A senior official on the National Security Council, uh, on his way to his car after work, um, he was walking and he began to hear ringing in his ears. His body went numb. He had trouble uh, controlling the movement of his legs and his fingers. He eventually was able to get himself to the hospital by calling a taxi. He was in no condition to drive, but the doctors were at a complete loss of what happened to him. 
Um, they suspect that he suffered from a, quote, massive migraine with aura. And so this, uh, this brings up questions, you know, about the Havana syndrome uh, that you would hear about a lot during the Cuban crisis. And so now another mystery uh, <laughs> phenomenon. That's right. I'm looking forward to Tuesday. Because uh, that's when the report will be released from. That's when the report will be released on the UAPs, which, mm. which if you know, if the government, there were some new ones. The radar detection mm-hmm. system from one of the navy ships showed like fourteen UAPs, like surrounding the the vessel. Yeah. So if it's if it's government, right, that, that's going to be unique to. I mean, I guess how much will they be able to disclose? But my point is that. It's not surprising. If we have that kind of technology flying around, you know, what prevents some other government or even our own government to have technology that does what you're, that you're describing? Now, Texas is poised to remove one of its major gun restrictions after lawmakers approve, approved allowing people to carry handguns without a license and the background check and training that go with it. Republican-dominated legislature approved the measure on Monday, sending it to Governor Greg Abbott who said he will sign it despite the objections of law enforcement groups who say it would endanger the public and police. But yeah, Texas turns out actually, in Texas you needed a license for both open carry and concealed carry. So this is going to be interesting. Because here in Washington you could, you do need to get a permit for concealed carry, but you can open carry, you know, whatever gun you want to carry. Does that mean there's there's already a whole bunch of states that have this? Right, yeah. There's Well, the constitutional carry is considered the one where... where well, I guess this is what they're going towards, too, is constitutional carry. Hmm. Right? The housing market is still on fire pretty much everywhere, but there are signs that it's starting to cool, if for no other reason that there just aren't enough houses to buy. Home prices in March grew more than 13% from a year earlier, the highest rate since late 2005. Meanwhile, the median price of a new home sold in April was up 20% from a year earlier to about 375000 Prices for existing homes are up similarly, but at the same time, existing home sales have been declining for three straight months due to a lack of inventory and the sky-high prices scaring many buyers off, especially younger first-time buyers. This report brought to you by Cheddar News. Yeah, so a ton of millennials are jumping into the market, realizing that, hey, maybe it is time to buy. I'm one of them, and we've been actually jumping into the market for quite a while, thinking, man, it's too high of prices. Well, they just kept rising. At this point, we're like... Uh, we're considering building, but then the prices of material rose as well. Oh yeah, so it's almost tripled. We're in a pickle right now, of trying to figure out whether to build or not. And uh, buying is definitely a weird decision to make right now with the current prices because you kind of feel like you're, you know, you're you're buying yourself into debt that's going to turn into this huge mountain if everything decides to drop. But I mean, the mountain's going to get smaller as inflation increases, right? So that I feel like that's... That's if it increases, and who knows you know, how it's going to go forward. Can we really trust the people who predict this stuff? Not anymore. With pandemic throwing a curveball into everything, it seems like, and crypto arriving, and you know, like people can make all sorts of predictions. Yeah, it's going to crash. No, it's going to keep going up. I mean, definitely, historically, right, there's always been an incline or, or increase in you know, house values and, and land value. And in general, the cost of living just keeps going up and up and up. So yeah, 20 years down the road, it w- will make sense. But in the near future, it's it's a gamble. So in Florida, parents, uh, students were angered after 80 yearbook photos of female students were altered to mask cleavage. So basically they were, they, they you know, it's, this is interesting because they received, they went, took pictures, the students did. They came 
home or at some point they got their yearbooks and they go on to say, here's a comment by a 15 year old. She's like, I couldn't believe they printed the yearbook looking like that. And then I started to flip through the yearbook and saw more and more girls with their chests edited. So in some instances, they literally took a chunk of clothes. And I mean, they're not even that, like you wouldn't say that these are immodest pictures that they were trying to fix. These were typical pictures. Uh, <laughs> in one instance, they took a, so let's see, it's a patterned shirt. What do you call that one? Did you see that one? Plaid, yeah. Yeah. The Photoshop skills of these people are just beyond uh, this universe. So they took a chunk of this plaid pattern trained, trained professionals placed it across the chest just you know like it doesn't even it doesn't even cover any there's nothing even to cover it like it's it's sad anyway so there was an obvious outrage but the bigger question is hold on so it's okay to for them to come to school like that or even to take a picture like that but then it's not okay when it's printed again <coughs> modesty is great but not as a afterthought but probably as a school policy i hope i'm pronouncing this right but karine jean-pierre on Wednesday, became the first openly gay woman to deliver the White House press briefing and only the second black woman in history to take on the role. So that's news. I'll tell you what, you know, looking from the picture, whoever is her PR person or, you know, image consultant, whoever it is, whoever dressed her up for that, like she really picked a bright outfit to stand out. Like that, you know, the the usual blue background and she's African-American and she's wearing a brightly yellow color like that's already unusual for the white house briefing room they're prepping it for the history books but the sad part yeah the the sad part is that it is you know this is the kind of these are the kind of things that make history i guess nowadays in our country like how's that an achievement because at this point the system encourages this kind of i guess just what what do you call them can you even it's it's not an achievement i guess so much as i mean obviously nobody did anything to to warrant that but like i guess it's just like a milestone In the world of Christian persecution, uh, sad news came out of Nigeria. According to a new report published this week by Interest Society, a Nigerian civil rights rights group, at least 1,470 Nigerian Christians have been killed because of their faith so far this year, with up to 2,200 more being kidnapped. This is according to TNC News. Now, those are big numbers. So think about it, 1,470 people already so far this year. Like we talk about persecution in China or, you know, in Asian countries or, you know, in Middle East, but this is unparalleled numbers. Like these are comparison, like for example, they're saying that the 1,470 Christian deaths in four months is the highest numbers recorded since 2014. And it specifically surpassed the total number of Christians killed in 2019, which was estimated by the Open Doors to be 1,350. So we're only you know, four months in and it's 1,470 people. To wrap your head around it, like this is a, you know, a size of, I don't know, good four or five churches, you know, typical churches in America uh, would be completely wiped out, right? These are brothers and sisters suffering for faith today. And uh, if you compare it to the numbers of the people that have been killed during, you know, the whole reign of Roman Empire, like from when Jesus left to all the way to 325 AD, you have about 2 million people that comes out to be 7,000 per year. It's kind of interesting because if you probably add up all the people who are being killed and suffering, you know, for faith around the world, you wouldn't be far away from the numbers from the Roman Empire. There's a world watch list basically of countries where it's the most difficult to be a Christian. Nigeria uh, has broken into the top 10 and, you know, it's number nine, whereas last year it was uh, number 12. It's one of those countries where these... 
these issues, they run really deep. Um, you know, there's issues with uh, Muslims in the north and obviously tribal conflict and things like that. Now, according to Cheddar News, Microsoft's president is warning that lawmakers have to step up the regulations of artificial intelligence, saying that George Orwell's dystopian novel 1984, quote, could come to pass in 2024, end quote, if measures aren't taken to protect the public. In a new BBC documentary, Brad Smith of Microsoft explains how AI is now advancing so quickly that the technology is reaching a point where policy would be difficult to implement. Former Google CEO Eric Schmidt has also been warning that China is quickly catching up to the U.S. when it comes to AI, calling it a national emergency. This is interesting because we're, we're living in a world where AI is all over now, and AI is given more and more, um, I guess, decisions to make in our life from a technological standpoint. Our reliance on technology is not going to go without consequence. Like, we're, you know, it's gradually. Every year we're getting more and more used to relying on the data, you know, being supplied to us or, or confirmed to us by AI without even realizing it. There will come a time when we're, you know, going to be tested and we'll realize how much we depend on it. Or mind you, this is president of Microsoft that's saying this and CEO of Google. So Elon Musk says it's okay. <laughs> The government of China likes to host these kind of ultra-marathon events. Um, there's a track in northwest China uh, that was very remote. It's uh, 100 kilometers long, uh, about 3,000 meters above sea level. And unfortunately, everyone who was competing got trapped in some extreme weather, and 21 runners died. So apparently, like, randomly, the weather just turned really bad within minutes i suppose right this is what they were saying and again they didn't foresee this with all of their technology and with all of their ai that they have and yeah i mean apparently there was so among those who died was uh, actually a famous paralympian huang ganjun who was deaf and mute this was obviously a egregious oversight by the organizers of the event that's really sad so it looks like six runners were rescued by a local shepherd who sheltered them in the nearby cave including at least one unconscious man whom he carried in from the track the shepherd, the Zhu Kim, Kiming, has been hailed as national hero for saving their lives. And that'll do it for the lightning round. And welcome back to the show. If you're standing, uh, I would recommend that you would find a seat because as with any of our international stories, it needs a lot of background. So the country of Belarus has been in the international news quite a bit as of this week, which is very unusual. I say it's unusual because if you're a layman on the world's geopolitical stage, Belarus doesn't really stand out from the crowd of post-Soviet nations. Uh, you know, we have countries like Slovenia or Turkmenistan or Moldova or, see, I'm having a hard time even singling out their names. Belarus has a population of 9 million, which is less than our state of Washington. They produce a lot of fertilizer for export, and the president, Alexander Lukashenko, has been in power for nearly 30 years. Generally, they're considered as close to a puppet state of Russia as you can get. When Belarus became, in quotes, independent, Lukashenko kind of just remained in powers, and he runs a tight ship with the philosophy, if it ain't broke, why fix it? And if you don't like it, you're welcome to stop talking. But because he keeps his head down, does it contradict Russian leadership? And he doesn't have any, I guess, grandiose world takeover schemes. Uh, on a side note, this if you want to look up Boris Yeltsin um, and how Lukashenko almost got him to hand over control of Russia in the late 90s, 
That's an interesting story. But aside from that, he doesn't attract as much attention from rights activists as, for example, the leader of North Korea. Uh, and you might think, hey, that comparison was a little out of left field. But here's what trended in the news this week. There's been a surge of anti-government protests in Belarus since August of last year. Uh, because the state controls the media and independent journalists are watched closely, the opposition leaders use the messaging app Telegram to organize and coordinate demonstrations. Also to report on police mistreatment and arrests. So the media activists that use the Telegram app, this is the sort of unregulated rebel journalism. You know, some of these users, they have hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Uh, understandably, most of it is kept quiet by the state-controlled media. Uh, any journalists found reporting at these demonstrations without a license from the state are treated as protesters and they're a fair game for beatings and arrests. Uh, there have been regular protests about the most recent Belarus election. So in this kind of surprise upset victory, Lukashenko won his sixth consecutive term. Uh, according to foreign news sources, nearly 35,000 people have been detained since the protests began 10 months ago. Uh, one of the most prominent leaders of this opposition is 26-year-old Roman Protasevich. He is one of the country's top media activists. So this man was on a flight to Lithuania flying with Ryanair when the pilot received a call from a Belarus control tower that uh, there was threat of a bomb on board and the plane had to land immediately. And so a Belarus military plane, uh, for the plane nerds, it was a MIG-29 fighter jet. Uh, it was nearby and so it escorted them to land in Minsk where Protasevich was promptly arrested under claims that he has ties with uh, domestic terrorist groups, which is what when Lukashenko was questioned about it as well, like he, he stuck to is like, hey, I had to, you know, I had to do this for basically I had to take the initiative to defend our country. But if you're worried about what happened to him, it's OK, because the Belarusian authorities released a video on Monday that showed Protasevich uh, seated at a table. He said he was in satisfactory health. Uh, his treatment in custody was, quote, maximally correct and according to law. And uh, so this is what drew the North Korea comparison earlier. Yeah, I was looking at the video and it's interesting because he's sitting there. I mean, there's he has no emotion on his face at all. It's literally like he just memorized the whole thing and he just says it from beginning to end, no emotions. In fact, there was another video of his dad uh, saying that, nah, that's that like that's our son was forced to say that. Uh, they pointed out a few areas on his face that they think that they put makeup on. Uh, and then in comments, people were saying, well, you know, beating up a person is not necessarily the only form of torture. There's a lot of other things you could do to, to a person, you know, besides beating their, their face. But anyways, it looked like it was a very forced video that everything is okay because he, he does say like, no, I have no problems. They're treating me really well, which is highly unlikely <laughs> considering mm -hmm. what we saw with protesters like you mentioned uh, uh, since August. I think a lot of people kind of read into that. And so, you know, the leaders of countries like the United Kingdom, uh, I mean, even Joe Biden, nations of Europe, they really strongly condemned this incident. Uh, and not only did they stop all international flights to Belarusian airports, uh, there's talks of other sanctions, you know, even suspension of energy pipelines. You know, obviously behind this is calls for the release of this guy, Roman uh, Protasevich. And so diplomats of Russia and Belarus, you know, Lukashenko himself came out and said that this is Western interest groups uh, meddling in our affairs. You know, this is a this is a intentional like provocation and they're spreading anti-Russian rhetoric. That's a big mess because we see like these sanctions happening, but these sanctions could just push Belarus into more dependency on Russia. And I think a lot of that is a lot of the reason why that nation is the way it is is because of kind of these like anti-Western attitudes. So it's the EU that 
close the airspace, right, above them. Yeah. In, in general, I mean, I don't think this is going to hurt Belarus. You said they're exporting what previously? Uh, it's like a it's like a chemical that's found in fertilizers. Well, the thing is, like, all these sanctions, they could push Belarus closer to Russia, like more dependency on Russia, which... It, it could put them, push, push them more towards Russia, but I think it's meant to just bring the conflict to to a breaking point and swing it one way or the other. If uh, the EU is closing the airspace for them to travel to their countries, that that's kind of that's kind of a huge step, right? So you would expect probably some kind of reaction, I guess, pretty soon here because people would need to travel. But then Belarus right now is facing um, tough times in terms of political future of the country because a lot of the Belarusians said that you know this is this is now going out of control. Like you said, the surprise election. Don't think so, right? And so a lot of people are hitting the streets. And I think that this might be the European Union to kind of push the conflict to its breaking point, if you will. On the other hand, like you mentioned, it could be that they will just now lean more towards into Russia, right? Now, Belarus is, I don't think it's that greatly dependent on the European Union to continue its livelihood. I'm Just knowing Russian people, Slavic people, they're pretty well sustained, you know, it might affect the economy a little bit. But outside of that, they're going to continue to live on like they've done for years and years, regardless of what was going on in the Soviet Union in general. Yeah, so you're right in that, you know, Belarus really does remain kind of a snapshot in time uh, of your typical kind of post-Soviet Eastern Bloc nation. Belarus, you know, as we as we've seen, is kind of a black hole for freedom of press, freedom of expression, as long as obviously you're aligned with uh, the political leanings of whoever's in power and Obviously, it's only been one person so far. Uh, so the fact that opposition leaders and independent media are not given a voice means that the president or whoever's in control of the president has nearly absolute control. Uh, I don't know too much about the political machinations that have been going on in Belarus since the fall of the Soviet Union. But from what I picked up from casual conversations among Slavic people living in the U.S., uh, Lukashenko is seen as someone who is like, yeah, he's a little bit eccentric, but in kind of a harmless, jovial way. I mean, I don't know if we can judge you know, the political state of a country based on, you know, one guy's personality. But, you know, people did it with Trump. One instance, I guess, if to bring up an example, it's anecdotal, but, you know, it comes to mind when the pandemic lockdowns were beginning uh, kind of across the continent, across the world, uh, Lukashenko gave a statement on television kind of playing down the virus saying that, hey, if all the people were hard at work in the fields, uh, driving tractors instead of watching TV, then the country could avoid all this panic about the virus, you know, the uh, you know, the fields will heal you and the tractors will heal you. Um, and so this was around the middle of uh, March 2020. And so we kind of see his, uh, you know, very charismatic character. He tends to exaggerate. This is obviously anecdotal, but do you think there's an argument to be made in defense of, I guess, people like Lukashenko, many Russian leaders that are so set on combating the pressures of Western progressive culture? Now, the methods are definitely questionable, at times, you know, even cruel. But they obviously see themselves as more of a like an isolated civilization state that plays by their own rules rather than being exemplary members of this uh, this international community. Um, is it a just cause or only selfish gain? I think that Western civilization in general is arrogant in its thinking that you know we're the apex of social evolution, I guess. Western philosophy tends to place itself at the very top. And because of that, it thinks that everybody needs our democracy. All these countries, you know, and while there could be some benefit, there's obviously a lot of garbage that comes along with the Western thought. And so, yeah, in a sense, these guys are standing up, you know, for their traditions, for their 
traditional values for the, what their countries are, they don't need to be a, you know, upgraded version of Russia or, you know, by American standards, let's say, or Belarus, but they can upgrade in their own way, if you will. And there's some truth, I guess, to the fact that traditions, you know, define you culture defines you and so if you start altering it you're altering what this country will be in the future but the questionable part of their methods or or maybe you know like i wouldn't put too much trust in the russian leaders because just as the western might be arrogant in their beliefs the russian people on the other hand or slavic people might uh, you know a lot of them are corrupt and that's a result of the previous era of communism in ussr that left the whole slew of nations uh, that had corrupt leaders for as long as they can remember. And so the next generation of leaders, um, you know, have a challenge now to, or had a challenge in 90s to detach themselves from that. And it's a, it proved to be a very difficult task. Corruption is still a huge problem for Slavic countries. Now, some are better off than others. Belarus, Russia, Ukraine, you know, they're still fighting through through those problems. So I wouldn't say that you could say holistically, uh these these rulers are step standing up for something that's you know holy like traditions culture they also have ulterior motives you know in their fight for traditions if you will so you can't really trust them like i said both societies have positives i think they're in the right not to allow the western philosophy and approach to life to be rushed into their country as something that's amazing and next level yeah, i think that in doing these kind of comparisons it's also important to Remember that, you know, depending on our news source, we can be getting a radically different spin on the same exact event. So if you look at the, you know, Lukashenko's press conference versus what maybe a news agency from the West with uh, some kind of anti-Russian spin would put on it, you know, you get two radically different stories. Um, and so I, I do think that it's important to, uh, to be able to identify like the good values in both. There's good and bad people anywhere you go. Let's head into our final story. So like we mentioned in the lightning round, the attempt to create a January 6th commission seems unlikely at this point. And Democrats are confused and looking for something to blame. You know, what could be driving these Neanderthals to oppose them? Uh, the easiest scapegoat is, of course, QAnon. I'm sure at this point, many people are at some level or another familiar with the QAnon theories. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because we haven't talked about it all that much. I'd give a brief overview, but it's pretty complicated. There's different levels. Basically, it's a whole system of conspiracy conspiracy theories that have been present on internet forums for some time about pedophilia rings, uh, Satan worshippers, global elites like Jeffrey Epstein and the Clintons and Bill Gates. Finally, in 2017, there was a user on 4chan, which is a popular forum for largely unfettered self-expression. This user claimed some authority in weaving the theories together and people were uh, and still are making prophecies about Trump's role in exposing these evildoers and how there will be a day of reckoning. But uh, mainstream media and elites are doing everything they can to discredit, shut down any proponents of this theory. If you'd like to expand on that, you're welcome to. There's much more to it. But this that was as concise as I can make it. There was a on Thursday there was a poll released by the Public Religion Research Institute and the Interfaith Youth Corps. Here are some of their findings. So keep in mind that a lot of these are contingent with core elements of QAnon theory, although this was reported by New York Times, so the word choice uh, it's safe to assume by the word choice that it's meant to spark a negative reaction. Here are the stats, I guess. 15% of Americans say that they think that the levers of power are controlled by a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles. Uh, a similar number agreed that 
American patriots may have to resort to violence to depose the said pedophiles and restore rightful order. 20% of people polled said that they thought a biblical-scale storm would soon sweep away these evil elites and restore the rightful leaders. So if you agreed with all three of those statements, the poll classified you as a QAnon believer. Uh, if you mostly disagree but don't reject the statement outright, the poll classified you as a QAnon doubter. Um, everybody else left over was considered a QAnon rejecter. So we have QAnon believer, QAnon doubter, and QAnon rejecter. Of people who identified themselves as Republican, nearly 25% were in the believer category, 55% were doubters, uh, which means left over, there's about 20% that rejected these theories. Of the Democrats that were polled, 58% were QAnon rejectors, so to speak. There was also a strong correlation between favorite news source and how likely the person was to believe the QAnon theories. So President Trump, when he, uh, uh, when the press tried to coerce him into denouncing the movement, giving more fuel to conspirators, no doubt, uh, he said that he appreciates that they like him so much uh, and commented that the movement seemed to be growing rapidly. Well, this poll shows that he was right. Uh, in fact, if these poll numbers have any credibility, it could mean that QAnon has over 30 million followers, as much as some denominations of Christianity in America. Now, popularity doesn't always mean that something is commendable or even true. Uh, there's two pastors from uh, North Carolina, California, ha that have spoken out against QAnon. Ben Marsh and James Kendall have made calls for their congregations to stick to the teachings of the Bible and not let false teachers lead them astray. Obviously, there are many more pastors that teach a different message, saying things like, uh, you know, there's a demonic hedge of protection around Joe Biden or making predictions about elections being overturned or calling COVID-19 a hoax. Uh, this doesn't make them specifically QAnon believers, but many of the same lines of thought run through the theories from QAnon. So, I mean, if there's anything I skipped uh, that you wanted to bring up, what is your opinion on QAnon popularity or some of the best arguments for or against it? Okay, so I'm not very familiar with the QAnon, like the whole, you know, I, I guess the whole, um, I don't know, the doctrine of QAnon. I know that it's been uh, very prevalent throughout Trump's presidency, right? These hints that they keep dropping in Q messages or Q posts or whatever they call them. Q drops. Q drops, right? They're yeah. very cryptid. They're, they've got like, um, you have to have layers of uh, lingo to understand what they're talking about. And uh, they're not very predictive or prophesying in any way they're just merely usually reflect some kind of foreknown i guess news that will be released or something or sometimes they play off of something in the past it, it was just another conspiracist you know another conspiracy i guess angle if you will just like journalism has multiple channels this was just one of the channels uh for conspiracy and so it, it was interesting because the mystery of this whole QAnon was um intensified by the fact that nobody knew who the creator or the guy behind it is up until recently. So I was looking, uh, I don't know where I found this, but at one point I was watching a piece of a documentary and I think it was released not too long ago. So this is a quote from, uh, from Syracuse that, you know, they go, they go on to say in their article, who is Q, the leader of the right-wing conspiracy theory group known as QAnon, has remained a mystery for several years, but now a new HBO documentary says it's identified Q. So Q is like this new six-part HBO docu-series by film filmmaker Colin Habeck. It explores the bizarre, widely discredited internet cult who believes Q is an anonymous government insider, posting cryptic clues about sex trafficking ring made up of pedophiles and cannibals that plotted against President Trump. There were claims that Trump will remain a shadow president. But into the storm 
as the name of this, you know, documentary that the HBO released, names Q as Ron Watkins, the son of 8chan founder Jim Watkins. Uh, there's this video where the journalist, the investigator who's been trying to like track down who the Q is, speaks to the admin or moderator of um, of the Q board or Q, whatever it's called, right? And he's speaking to him in the video and he's like, and there comes a moment where he slips up and instead of speaking in, I guess, third person, about the Q guy, the main Q guy, he slips and says it from a first-person perspective. And you could see it in the video because immediately the smile reaches across his face and he's looking down and he's like, oh, well, what I mean is, and the guy, I got it. I, you know, like the, the <laughs> investigator, he's like, I got it. You know, he was just so excited because he he literally got, that's, I guess, that's that I guess took away a little bit of the mystery from behind it is that it's just a regular person behind it who, you know, Obviously, it has a political interest, um, but yeah. So that's that's my extent of knowledge of, of QAnon. But I'm I'm just surprised at how pervasive it is still. I guess it's fair to say some things, no matter how much you slander and smugly discredit the people involved, you know, some things I just find undeniable. Jeffrey Epstein, a guy who was under 24-hour suicide watch, somehow supposedly managed to kill himself, and he also happens to have better connections than just about anyone in the world in terms of money and influence. And all this happens as he's about to testify about his involvement in child trafficking. Uh, to say that those circumstances are suspicious, that's undeniable. Uh, when Alex Jones snuck into the Bohemian Grove and he filmed the cremation of care ceremony, to call that just an innocuous kind of quirky tradition, in my opinion, is an insult to the critical thinking skill of the average person. You know, you, you mentioned critical thinking skills. And I think that's that's where this whole thing kind of falls. You need to have fringe ideas in a society you, you need to uh, i mean the the cases that you just mentioned you know they are they definitely have you know reasonable doubt in them and so somebody needs to analyze them somebody needs to be that weirdo out there maybe right with a that, that takes the idea and stretches us out where most of us won't that's for the good because some of them turn out to be not as far of a stretch as we thought and so uh, but critical thinking is still a probably top skill that and you know every adult should develop and that means being able to tell what is the weird stuff in the QAnon and what is possibly hinting at some real events unfolding around us yeah i think as with any lie there has to be an element of truth to make it compelling you know we look back to this story in Genesis where the serpent in the Garden of Eden brought about the fall of man through these kind of cleverly forged half-truths. Uh, and so my personal take is that QAnon is a complicated system of conspiracy theories, and many of the claims, uh, like you mentioned, have to be analyzed individually. Uh, if we do that, we're bound to find some that are true. Uh, I don't want to end on a cynical note, but the Bible does say that the man's heart is deceitful above all things uh, many of these global elites have, uh, well, they haven't earned my benefit of doubt. Well, that's all for the stories this week. We're so glad you've joined us for another episode of Life Ring. Please consider following us on Facebook or Instagram. Just type in Life Ring Podcast. And also consider sharing it with a friend or family member that would benefit from a weekly overview of the current events from a conservative and Christian perspective. And as always, we'd like to remind you that there is no better news on any given day and the good news of Jesus Christ. He died for the sins of the world so that everyone who comes to him would be saved. We encourage you to seek him if you haven't already. Thank you for listening to Life Ring, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>